Welcome to the South Carolina New Legacy Podcast. I'm Vicki and I'm here today with a special guest named Lester Young and with Wayne. So we are going to talk a little bit about Lester's campaign, Ban the Box. But first, I think we'll do a little check-in. And so I think our question is going to be, if you could do one thing, one thing in your life, what would it be? Like one travel to one place in your life. Let's, let's be specific. Where would you go? Mine would be Mecca. Mecca? Yeah, Saudi Arabia, Mecca, Medina area, yeah. Middle East. That's a good one. Uh, for myself, I've always wanted to travel to a few cities, but I will, in this instance, choose... Ah, oh, man, so many. Uh, I, There's a list. There is a list. <laughs> uh, but just for this, I'll probably say Warsaw. Yeah. For, oh. for me, I think I want to go to India. Um, I was talking to some coworkers this week, and I'm just feeling very mm-hmm. into wanting to go see what <laughs> India looks like because it just, I know it would be completely different than South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I think that's on my list. So, Lester, since you're our special, special guest, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? As she mentioned, my name's Lester Young. Um, I'm formerly incarcerated. What that means is that I went to prison at 19 years old, and I was released at 41. That means a total of four, uh, 22 years and five months I served in the Department of Correction. And during that time, um, I experienced a lot of things. I experienced a lot of emotional issues, not issues, but just emotional things, psychologically, mental things mm-hmm. that came with being incarcerated for the period of time that I was there. Mm-hmm. But just through the my self-perseverance and just applying myself, I was able to survive a lot of it. And now I'm out here. I've been home now. I've been released oh, five years now. Yeah. And I'm committed to using my story to empower others who are, who are in a very similar situation. I was one, I just once left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are you doing now that you are? One, one of the things that I'm doing right now after, in, after being released from the Department of Correction is challenging the fair hiring, the hiring of formerly incarcerated people. Being released from prison after 22 years, five months, and seeking employment, which is a requirement for my parole. Mm-hmm. And no one ever re- told me how difficult it would be to be in, get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, statistics show that uh, about 30%, let me see the exact number, about 60% of the people who are returning home from prison, it's, it takes at least about a year before they're actually hired. Some people get temporary employment mm-hmm. and they work for a month and they're fired. But full-time employment, it takes about a year. 60% of the formerly incarcerated people struggle with that. And I was in that 60%. It mm-hmm. took me right at about six months for me to get a full-time job. And, and that means applying at numerous jobs and we got the the, uh, the answer, no, 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 no. And it's because of a box. It was just based upon the box, not the, not my job skills or the person I am today. Uh, during my incarceration, I was able to get a two-year degree in business management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, went to, I went to prison with no education, meaning I had no high school diploma. So mm-hmm. I got my GED and applied myself, got a two-year degree in business management. So And I did all of the necessary things I believe that will prepare me to be mm-hmm. successful to win when I was returning back to society. So you don't re offend Re-offend. Yeah, re-offend. But again... I was not prepared for the, the, the discrimination mm-hmm. that came with the background, something that I did at 19. I was 41 years old mm-hmm. seeking employment, completely different than I was at 19 years yep. old. And no one really gave me an opportunity to explain that. Um, they just saw that I checked that box and said I had a felony conviction, and that was the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. There were literally times I would go online and apply for jobs, and I was denied. I mean, the computer, when you hit, have you been convicted of a felony, the computer mm-hmm. would actually shut down, you know, yeah. and, and would not even go any further with yeah. the application Which process. Which is totally unfair. Yes, exactly. Um, and so and so, how did you get started with this work uh, after you were released? Well, when I, when I, after being released from prison, I finally was able to get employed. Mm-hmm. And I was passionate about using my experience to empower others. So I started my own organization, which is called Path to Redemption. That's a nonprofit I, I formed. And the, the mission was to deter young teen boys from entering the prison system, but mm-hmm. also empowering 
those who are incarcerated as well as those who are returning home from prison. Uh -huh. So with that, um, I did that for like about three years as I was working for the, another company mm -hmm. and I came in contact with Just Leadership via social media. Uh -huh. And Just Just Leadership saw some of the work that I was, doing, I was doing and I saw their mission that was in line with what I believe in their core beliefs mm -hmm. and that's how I started. You know, they were on a national level. I was still a small organization trying to build something just from my life, my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found this work. So, what what specifically are you doing with it currently? My 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 goal right the the campaign that I'm working on, Band the Box, right now which, under Just Leadership, is focusing on the city of Columbia mm -hmm. and to change the Band the Box policy to an ordinance, meaning allowing the city to hire formerly incarcerated people, but also those who they contract out with, mm -hmm. to be able to expand that more for formerly incarcerated people to get employed. Mm -hmm. An example, you find those who are incarcerated, you might see some of them on the interstates picking up trash, yeah. you know, litter. But some of these individuals, they return home and they put on their application that they work for the city and the chances are they may not even get hired. And yeah. it's not that they don't have the work experience. They do have the work experience, mm -hmm. but because of their felony convictions. So we're, again, asking the city to open this thing up and hire more people with felony convictions mm -hmm. uh, to be able to. Well, a lot of people in South Carolina, like especially in black men, mm -hmm. are, have felony convictions yeah. in their past. And, and that's definitely there's a racial justice component Absolutely. to that as well. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's some studies have shown that white male, black male, a white male can have a criminal conviction and a black male have a criminal conviction. The study shows that a white male can go into a job interview and just based on his color of his skin has the same crime as me or even a worse crime than me. Mm -hmm. But his chances of getting employed is quicker with a felony offense than with a black male mm -hmm. who had all black female who has a felony conviction. So there's a lot of discrimination and racism there with that particular issue. And so Columbia is the first city that, that you're working yeah, on? Yes, as far as the ordinance is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, we're working, our goal is to establish it in Charleston, South Carolina, as well as Greenville to mm -hmm. get this ordinance passed. But we, we right now, being that I'm right here in Columbia, is getting Columbia to set basic the model of for other cities to follow suit. When you look at it, it's like 33 cities Mm -hmm. Across the country have already addressed it. 150 cities and counties have already done the ban the box ordinance. So mm -hmm. Columbia would not be the first. We have a precedent already set. Yeah. It's just a matter of us following this precedent to get more people with felony convictions hired and, and it employed. Would just, I think that the challenges faced as you come out of incarceration, just being able to get a job yeah. would decrease recidivism almost it changes. It changes the whole dynamic dynamics of the community. Uh -huh. The household, a man coming home and being able to provide for his children, to be able to t put a roof over their head, mm -hmm. that changes that family structure. But also now you have more money coming back in, in the community economically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now you're a building a community. An example, if you have a community that's been criminalized uh, over, over the last 10, 15 years, the majority of them sitting in this, living in this particular community have felony convictions yeah. of some sort. Mm -hmm. That means that the economy of that community is suffering, you know, because yep. most people don't have full-time jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So allowing them to be employed mm -hmm. not only changes the, crimin the criminalization of that community, but also add economic stability to that community. Uh, uh, th I think that's absolutely great. So you were talking earlier today before the thing about the ordinance that st you want the mayor and the city yes. council mm -hmm. to put through, you were saying that you want to make it more permanent so that if Steve Benjamin yes. moves on... Yes, Mayor Benjamin has made great strides towards addressing the issue. He sees a need, a need for it, and we, we applaud him for that. But we're saying in the event that when he does leave office, anyone could come and change this particular policy. The ordinance means that it becomes a mandate law within mm -hmm. the city of Columbia to set that example that, again, when individuals apply for employment, they are actually hired and to be able to not only, and why we say this. And at least give them a fair chance. Yes, give them that fair chance, but it also uh -huh. is nothing like working on a job and you have a job that has benefits and good pay, mm -hmm. insurance benefits. Yep. 401k benefits. You know, every person, whether you, yeah, every person has a felony conviction or some sort deserves a working future. Uh, I agree. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know uh, just before we started recording uh, this, this evening that there was a discussion uh, between you and Vicki about uh, any state legislation 
there actually has been a bill introduced, mm -hmm. uh, H3163, yeah. uh, that so far has made it into the House Labor, Commerce, and Industry Committee. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, is, is this something, too, that you will be tracking and following? Yes, absolutely, uh, because once we, once we have the ordinance passed in the city, that doesn't mean that we pack our bags and we go home. Mm -hmm. We believe that now we have to push it to a state level and get the state to buy into the ban the box, fair hiring for those with, with, with uh, felony convictions. And But one of the beauties of, of just leadership uh, that I, 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 I really just gravitate to... The Tell us why, what just leadership is. Just leadership is an organization that was founded in 2014 by a, a man by the name of Glenn Martin, someone who's formerly incarcerated, who believe that those who have been directly impacted by a problem have the solution, but are further away from the power and the resources to change it. That's the model. And he created the organization to educate and, and educate formerly incarcerated people to lead the discussion. We believe that those who have lived experience should be at the table of this bill that you're talking about, mm -hmm. that is talking about ban the box of fair hiring, not someone who has not been directly impacted, but someone who's been directly impacted to be able to provide some solutions, but a lived testimony of their experience of employment. So this Just Leadership, as I said, was founded in 2014 by mm -hmm. Glenn Martin and is now a national organization because Glenn Martin found himself in spaces in spite of all of the great things he's done. Uh, after being released from prison, but he found himself still being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And he felt like if he was being discriminated against, how many other thousands and thousands of men and women are being discriminated against? And not only that, but didn't have the education or the skill set that he had. So he believed in creating, he created uh, what is called Lead by Conviction. Mm -hmm. is a one-year course where formerly incarcerated people go through this particular training to help them educate, educate themselves about all of the necessary things they need to do to change policies, to lead and amplify their voice, but also organize other formerly incarcerated people as well as their community to join in changing the narrative and how mm -hmm. people perceive and, formerly incarcerated and, people. And is that program currently being instituted in Yes, yes. We prisons? actually... Um, um, not this. This is not in, It's not an instrument implemented in the prisons. Okay. You would have to actually be free. Right? Ah, okay. That's just a formally incarcerated. It's okay. a one year. They actually just finished a four days. It's a one year course. They just f finished the first half of the program uh, mm -hmm. a couple weekends ago mm -hmm. in New York. You travel in New York. You get trained. Uh, your transportation, your fee, your food expenses, hotel expenses, all of that is taken care of under just leadership. Mm -hmm. And you go and you get trained by one of the uh, business uh, mentoring leadership mentoring coach, mm -hmm. and he educates everyone who's in attendance about all of the things that you need to do, all the things you need to know and do to lead the movement when it comes down to forming. That sounds people. awesome. Absolutely, is it's absolutely. I, were you? A, I haven't had the opportunity yet. I'm a little jealous uh -huh. <laughs> um, because a lot. Because I, I work with the organization, so yeah. being that I work with it, I can't go through the one year, but I'm hoping that uh -huh. some way I get a chance to mm -hmm. do it. But we believe in producing as many leaders or people formerly incarcerated as we can across this country. Mm -hmm. So that if, even if you're not working directly with Just Leadership, you have you have learned and gotten familiar with the brand of Just Leadership, the mission of Just Leadership to go out into mm -hmm. your community and lead the movement mm -hmm. in, in different forms. Yeah, and, and so forgive my misunderstanding that initially. Yeah, it's um, not a problem. But, but as well, um, is, this, is this message, uh, especially about this training, and and the work that you're doing with just leadership, how are you finding it? Are you finding it receptive? Yes. In, in, yes. In yes. The I, I, yes, I am because the power of storytelling. Mm -hmm. The power of storytelling moves people, because my story is a lived experience. I see you wrote a book. We'll talk about that yeah. later. <laughs> it's, it's it's a lived experience. So yes, having formerly incarcerated people tell mm -hmm. their story of how difficult like for me when I tell someone that when I got out of prison seeking employment I struggled with it for the first six mm -hmm. months working on jobs that wanted to pay me seven dollars and 25 cents under the table under the table under the table you know working for fifty dollars a day working 10 hours and only bringing home two hundred and fifty dollars yeah. and then they still want to take out taxes for the 250 yeah. under the table so there was a lot of things that we had many I had to encounter and many other individuals that do still to this day encounter working part-time and and working on a job and feeling like yo like they like walking on pins and needles because they're afraid of that background check is going to come back uh -huh. and someone's going to pat them on the back and say, hey, we got to let you go. And you've been there for 90 days. You have been the best worker. 
and they're not going to judge you based upon those 90 days of performance, but based upon that. So that lived experience telling how that how to be living in fear or working in fear at a job, knowing that within 60 days that background check is going to come back. That means that your, your, your living expenses now is going to be cut off. Now, do you find that there are employers who are willing to... If you thought about do you does the do you do the work with like companies individually? Well, we're working and, we're working on that. Uh-huh. Um, but this is why going back to that state level yeah. is that once you push it to the state level and it becomes a mandate in South Carolina, where South Carolina is a fair mm-hmm. hiring state, then all of the companies that come in they have to fall under that particular banner. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's important too that formerly incarcerated people have the discussion with employers, businesses yeah. to let them know what it means to. What it means to them as far as their rehabilitation, uh, mm-hmm. their family, and just adding value to their lives to be employed. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, you were 19 years old. Yeah. And you spent 20 years. 22. Five, 22 give me my five months. Give me my five months. 22 years and five months in, <laughs> yeah. in jail. And mm-hmm. what would you like tell somebody who's coming out of jail in your situation? What would you tell another individual? I tell people, I talk to formerly incarcerated people every day, and I tell them when they transition out, it's like you have to hit the restart button. Because prison condition you, you live in an institutional environment of control for so long. And when you return back to society, it's going to be difficult. It's like a, it's going to be a culture shock. An example, I served 22 years and five months in maximum security prisons. I made parole. And I took one psychological test in the 22 years of me being released. And then that was it. And someone gave me a yellow envelope and said, you can walk out of the door. No, no preparing me for nothing other than saying, hey, you good. You meet your parole officer within 48 hours after your release, 72 hours after your release, and that's it. No preparation. So I tell people when they're returning home from prison or even when I go into the prisons, is that you have to be prepared to deal with the rejection which is going to shake the core of who you are. You're going to have to be prepared to deal with the depression that comes from being in a new environment and feel like you can't acclimate. A lot happens in 22 years. Yes, yes. As I'm looking at your computer right now, I'm thinking about when I first came home from prison and I was sitting across the desk to uh, in an interview. And a part of a part of completing this uh, the application, I had to do some stuff on, online. And this guy who was interviewing me didn't realize that I just got out of prison after serving 22 years. When I left prison, we didn't have computers like this. We didn't have laptops. In prison, you're not familiar with this particular form of technology. Mm-hmm. So now it's like this job's going to, this filling this application on this computer, either going to determine if I get hired or get fired. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, when I came home, I had opportunity to expose myself to the computers. So when I got the job, when I had the opportunity to fill out the application online, it was a smooth thing. But not every man and woman returning home from prison Has the have that opportunity. Networker. Have that support. You Did you have a good support network? I had a good have? support system my entire incarceration. Mm-hmm. My family, I was blessed to have great mentors mm-hmm. uh, that would come into the prisons that would mentor me and prepare me for my transition. I was blessed to, to have But that. not everybody has not that. Not everyone doesn't have that. Exactly. How, how can we sort of help build a support network how can people out here in the world help with that transition that is is first speaking to someone who's returning home from prison Mm -hmm. that lived experience finding out what their needs are you have Mm -hmm. a lot of agencies out here that think that they know the need Mm -hmm. but remember what i mentioned earlier is that for uh the the, those who are directly impacted by the problem have the solution but further from the power and the resources and that goes even with re-entry Mm-hmm. There's a lot of agencies say, well, we want to address reentry issues, but who's at the table? People with degrees and people who don't have the lived experience don't know mm-hmm. exactly what's needed to be catered. So I one is have people who have been directly impacted at the table to help draft the policies and the need and the, set, the needs of these people who return the individuals who are returning home from prison. That sounds that's going to be one of the that's key. a that's a big one and and yeah. and I think that. We'd love to have you come and talk to us some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I saw you wrote a book. Yeah. Lester's one of my Facebook friends, so I see his <laughs> yeah, stuff all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have my book here. You know, it's like, this is my uh, baby. It's what I mean by I gave birth. It's something I had in my... I write, too. I yeah, I had completely. it in my, in my heart for a while. And The Five Stages of Incarceration is really a book that I wish I had when I first went to prison. And what I mean by that, it, it, it's like a self-help guide to help you navigate 
the different things that you you face in prison. And what I mean by that, I mean it internal. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of internal things that individuals have to address during their incarceration. Like the five stages, right quick, are called self-denial, anger, victimization, transformation, and forgiveness. These are five stages of interpersonal work that a person has to really put in himself or herself to help them understand why they are in prison, what was the thing that led to the crimes, and then begin to address those particular layers to help them in that transformation of them while they're incarcerated. So, so tell us a little bit about your process. Tell us. My process was like, as I said, one of the first stages. Of, of my book, it mentioned self, self-denial. Mm-hmm. I went to prison in a state of denial about a lot of core things that shaped my, 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 my mindset. And you my were behavior. only 19 years old. Only 19 years old. So mm-hmm. those core things just triggered so many other bad things. One of the things that I mentioned in my book is I struggled, not struggled, but I was in denial about how deep the grief of losing my mother was. Mm-hmm. I lost my mother when I was 16 years old. And it and it started from just a argument, not a, a night the night before my mom's passed, we had an argument about something as simple as washing dishes. Mm. It's a typical teenage argument. Tip, exactly, but never in my mind I thought that in the morning I would wake up and, and go to school and return back home. My mom was no longer here, uh-huh. so I live with from sixteen to about twenty five. I live with that deep level of self guilt and blame. Uh-huh. which I was in denial about, didn't get the counseling that I think that I, I knew that I should have gotten when I was 16. Mm-hmm. But that only triggered anger, and my anger was misdirected. And I lashed external. out. external. Mm-hmm. Yes, I lashed out on everything externally. I, it was like a volcano erupting and mm-hmm. never understood what the core belief of what was what was going on with that. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first stage that I had. When I was sitting in prison, I remember just trying to understand, like, how in the hell am I going to navigate through this mm-hmm. and what brought me here? And I remember sitting down. It's crazy, but I was sitting out watching Oprah Winfrey one day. Oprah's a good choice. I I, I think she's taught That's me a lot. That's when she was. You. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly had because I was in the cell and I didn't have anything really to do this day. And I was watching Oprah at four o'clock when she would come on and she was talking about journaling. Uh huh. And she was talking about all of the great things come out of journaling. I've journaled since I yeah. was eleven years old. So I never journaled in my life, and I remember listening uh-huh. to her, and she said, "Find five things that." That, that you are grateful for every day and write them down in your journal. And it, it shapes a positive thinking. Mm-hmm. So I remember the next couple of days I went to the prison canteen and I got the book, a notebook, uh-huh. and I made a commitment to start writing down five things that I would be grateful for in spite of my prison conditions, which allowed me to start seeing things differently, but then mm-hmm. allowed me to start looking within. And yeah. that's when I began my, to address my, those issues. My, my therapist when I went to therapy, told me, you can't control what others do, but you can control how you react. Yeah. That sounds similar. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh-huh. And that's what it was. Once you uh-huh. understood that you had the power, you have power uh-huh. either determine where you go in your life. I, I had to realize that before going to prison, I gave power to everyone and everything. But inside of prison, sitting there watching Oprah Winfrey show and reading books, uh-huh. I realized that I had to take the power from back that I gave everything and everyone else and started and invested it in me. What's the best book you read while you were there? Do you have a, a, a I have book? like one book that really inspired me, that put me on this path, was Malcolm X, written by uh, Alex Haley. That's a good one. Yeah, just to see that whole phase of how uh-huh. Malcolm went, as I call it, the five stages. I, I used to teach, uh-huh. showing people the different phases of Malcolm's journey while incarcerated. Uh-huh. And Malcolm, to this very day, is an individual that really inspired me. And, and he is an underrated guy. In my opinion, I don't think people appreciate him because it's a Christian society. No disrespect to the listeners. <laughs> I think because his faith was Islam, uh-huh. and uh, at that time he was uh, with Martin and Malcolm. There's a Christian society. More people gravitated to uh-huh. him, and he was a person that spoke what he felt and, and spoke what he saw in our communities. If you read Malcolm X's speeches, and I'm talking to the listeners, not mm-hmm. to you, because obviously yeah. Yeah. you know, um, I they resonate. In 2019, just as much as they did in the 1960s Mm -hmm. when he was at his peak. That's the beauty of the, you know, with Uh King as well, give King his rights too, because you read some of his speeches. But Mm -hmm. Malcolm just had, it's so much people don't know about Malcolm's work. And his Mm -hmm. not on his personal transformation, but going back again to trauma, like Mm -hmm. what put him on to become Detroit Red? 
You know, what put him on that criminal path when he was in school? He was a good student. He told his teacher that he wanted to be a lawyer. She told him, no, you should be a carpentry. We see that type of racism, that type of, that put down even in some of the schools today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so we can see it, but it's a lot that comes with that. You know, what put Malcolm on that path is just like so many Afro-American males was Malcolm witnessing his father killed. Mm -hmm. The trauma and then seeing his mother lose her mind as a result of her husband dying Mm -hmm. so all of that all of that trauma Malcolm lived with throughout his teenage life and his adult life dealing with that particular trauma so we connect that to young Afro-American males in our community today Today. Mm -hmm. you see that some of them deal with it's very similar they not necessarily see their father die physically but they see that their father have abandoned them and they struggle with that abandonment issue on a mental level that's Mm -hmm. torture you know, yep. and it's the trauma. And then also maybe see your mom struggling. All that stuff impacts you in different ways. And, and to be fair, food, being food insecure. A lot of people in South Carolina, I think like a fourth of the children, mm-hmm. live under the poverty level and yeah. are food insecure. It's it's easy to see what causes a lot mm-hmm. of these yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, so what, what's one thing you want to tell us about how we can help ban the box? Well, one of the things that we're asking uh, your listeners and everyone who has uh, give us an opportunity to speak is it's supported by sharing the information. We have a petition. You can go to a ban the box, hashtag working future. We have a page on Facebook mm-hmm. that you can go. We have a change.org. I'll link that in the show notes, guys. Yes, and you can actually just go there, fill out the petition, share the petition, and share information with us, like our page, and follow us, and follow the different events that we have. We're planning an event in April, April the 3rd. We're inviting the mayor uh, to attend this meeting, but we're asking, in commemoration of the sanitation um, uh, protest uh, during Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther King's uh, April the 3rd, uh-huh. and we're commemorating that by having this town hall basically saying, I am human, meaning that we want the community to start seeing formerly incarcerated people for who they are. They're humans. Mm -hmm. Just like the sanitation worker said, I'm a man, we're saying we're humans. Meaning that you have to address us as such. The language has to change when it talks about formerly incarcerated people. Instead of referring to us as ex-con, ex-felons, inmates, Mm -hmm. ex-inmate, or whatever, say we're people. Because we believe that the language needs to change. When language changes, policy and everything else has changed. Language helps other yeah. Other people, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. So when you when you add inc- formerly incarcerated people, it emphasize yeah. the emphasis on the people at the end. The humanness of the of the person, yeah. meaning it, that the mistake that I made at nineteen, I'm not that I'm not that same person is a mistake. Uh-huh. All of us in this world have made a mistake that live and breathe. Yep. You know, so it's showing you that we're disconnected. I am formerly incarcerated. I'm a human being, mm-hmm. and I deserve every right. Every human right uh, uh, issue that we are, we're rewarded or given in this country, mm-hmm. I deserve the same thing in spite of the mistakes that I made. Yeah. Are you going to be the only person speaking, or are there going to be? We're other, going to have a few um, other. We're working right now on on uh, on the on the panel. The who we're going to have on the panel mm-hmm. discussion for April the third. We, we're still in the process of working on that, but definitely um, we're hoping that the mayor will attend, city council members, and different organizations like yours that will be in attendance just mm-hmm. to show solidarity that you believe in what we're doing because I think that that's one of the biggest things that we find in in Colombia what I've seen is division we find mm-hmm. all these different groups moving around doing yep. different things but there's no collaboration mm-hmm. you we, know we, we agree with that by the way <laughs> yeah we believe that there has to be some collaboration about what it even if it's mm-hmm. just saying hey, I support you this is what I'm willing to do I'm willing to get some petition signed for you or if you say hey Lester could you could you just show up at the state house and hold up a sign for me this day that's all I can do. I'll do just that. Uh-huh. It's about showing that support for the different organizations that are bringing about social, addressing social injustice in our city and our state. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and I have enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you. you'll come back again and join us on the podcast. Wayne, do you have anything else you and want also to... update us on on the work? Yeah. Um, yeah. As well, I guess the last thing before we go, I know you'd mentioned. Uh, the training in New York that takes place mm-hmm. uh, for formerly incarcerated individuals. Is there a time specifically when they should like, apply for that? Well, they, if they see? go to our Facebook page, okay. uh, yeah. Band of Box, Working Future, I post stuff there. I know we have like an emerging leader. It's like a one-day training mm-hmm. for emerging leaders to get some tools, some skills that they need to continue to go into the community to be the, the warrior for social justice mm-hmm. and, and, and criminal justice reform issues. So I just like have that information on my page. 
You can just look, follow it. And if you know anyone that's formerly incarcerated, want to get some free training that is actually involving and, and bringing about some change, mm-hmm. then that's the place to be. Just Leadership provides you with that one year uh, one year leadership training that it's it's a beautiful thing. All right. So yeah. listeners, you have at least one bit of homework. Uh, be be involved and in touch with the formerly incarcerated individual or individuals in your life and make sure they listen to this episode and get this information as well. Uh, thank you all so much and hopefully we'll see you soon. Be blessed. Thank you guys. Thank you. Welcome back to the South Carolina New Legacy Podcast. I'm Wayne and I'm here with our guest this evening. Uh, and we'll go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, but as we do that, we'll also check in. So for the check-in, we're going to say uh, one thing that happened that was really good in our day. So I'll go ahead and start. Uh, as everybody knows, my name's Wayne. Uh, uh, really good thing that happened today was I made it to two Pokemon Go raids. Oh, imagine that. Nice. Yeah. And so to our special guest this evening. Hi, my name is Sabrina Jeffcoat. Um, and one good thing that happened to me today is that I held a bylaw revision meeting in about 40 minutes, which is only 10 minutes past what I wanted it to be. And we got it all done. I like you, you know, we're talking about, I condensed it and sent it back out. Nice uh, job. I am very excited about that. So, <laughs> so one good thing that happened in my day is I acquired a Fitbit yesterday. So I am wearing it to track my movement and hopefully I won't die young. <laughs> it should tell you before you do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a heartbeat rate right. thing. So hopefully I'll know. <laughs> And, and who are you? I'm Vicky. I did not say my name. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So, okay. So this evening, uh, we, we invited Sabrina uh, because we want to have a discussion uh, as a part of, you know, the second episode of our Black History Month uh, series uh, about some of the work that Sabrina does with uh, the Lexington Museum mm-hmm. and also some of her other work doing uh, some public education with students. So, Sabrina. Tell us about yourself, Sabrina. Okay. I am a visual artist. I graduated from the College of Charleston in 2012. I talk fast. I'm going to slow down. That's okay. Speak (laughs) up. Every time I hear my dad in the background, slow down. Um, (laughs) And so, I have been practicing as an artist, um, and now... Um, kind of leaning more towards the art administrator thing uh, for a while, I guess. Um, I started out as an artist making other people's art at SCAD. I did that about two and a half years in Savannah, Georgia. And then I made my way reluctantly back to Columbia, South Carolina, but was really pleasantly surprised when I got back here. So since then, I've been working as a... Um, Why were you pleasantly surprised? <laughs> I was here. There were things that I hadn't realized. When I left Columbia, well, for one, I'm from Gaston, South Carolina. And so when I left South uh, Columbia, I was a child. You know, I was like 18, and then mm-hmm. I hadn't really seen anything other than Gaston. We never really came to Columbia, you know, honestly. So I'm from Pamplico, South Carolina. I hear her. Yeah, you know. So uh-huh. when I came back, I my, my parents had moved and we now lived in the city. Um, and I just found so many things to get into. I remember one of the first events I went to when I moved back was this, like, I don't know what it's called. It was like a, a presentation that USC's music department put on, and the kids, the students used, like, household items to make this amazing symphony. It was a national, like, project that was being held that one day. And I was just so, you know, amazed by that. Uh-huh. I thought maybe I might linger in Columbia. Nice. <laughs> art, if art, this happened every week, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Art is a, a growing community in Columbia. I think it's it's. I participate in the circus arts. I hula hoop a little bit, uh, and that's we actually have a little circus company in in Columbia. That's awesome. I actually know some really amazing jugglers. 
Oh, um, boy. I think in Asheville or at Asheville. Uh-huh. Uh, but so I have um, been a working artist since I graduated, and that amazes me and lots of other people that I talked to. Yeah, because I remember there was a point where you were making jewelry. I still, yeah, so okay. when I moved back here, I was looking for work and I couldn't find any. And so what I actually did was I started a company and it was really based on the fact that I read some article about this lady in Virginia and she had a drapery and she said it was the best decision she made in her life. So it was like textiles, that's very South Carolina, you know? So I'm gonna have a drapery and <laughs> Then I realized how expensive it is to buy towels, you know, really expensive <laughs> towels. And so my overhead would have been ridiculous. And so it started just as a accessories company. that, But I, I use textiles in my accessories and uh, with a focus on Southern culture and all the people who made the South what it is. So people of color. So Yay. that is, you know, Native Americans or, you know, um, African-Americans, people of African descent. All of those things. And so it's still kicking. I have five retail stores in South Carolina now, so I've grown since we first talked about it three years ago. Nice. And um, I do a lot of consultation work, and I piloted a program. You could tell us the name of your company. Oh, yes. I never. <laughs> I don't do that. Never I suck at self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth, and that never got better over the three years uh, so the company's <laughs> the company's called Royal African Company uh, and so it is uh, it's LLC and I've definitely utilized that do you have a website or <laughs> I do it is royalafricanco.com and you those are the handles for Facebook and Instagram as well mm-hmm. um, do you post pictures I post pictures I'm doing this event uh, right now through the month of February called Artwork Wednesdays where people can come to my studio space uh, and ask me all the questions that they take up hours of my day to ask over coffees. And, uh-huh. you know, I am always open to having those conversations. But I thought, like, you know, why not? It's Black History Month. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, some six hours of consultation. That's amazing. Pro bono consultation. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love have it. snacks, too. No one came tonight, so you missed out <laughs> on some assortment of moon pies. Ooh, moon pies are delicious. Nice. RC colon moon pies? Mm, yep. And so tell and so tell us about the, the program that you piloted that is now in, what, at least one school? Right, so it's in yeah. one school. It started as a joint venture with a woman that I met who makes dolls we did it in her um, studio uh, on maple street i think it was at that time and it worked really well and then like me and her didn't work so well so then we stopped doing it but now it's over at the center for learning on covenant road and i started september so um we're about six months in and it's going so well what do you teach i teach um so it's a steam class, but I teach steam through life skills. So we learn sewing buttons, ironing, we've learned how to make sandwiches. We are learning entrepreneurship right now. So it's been about six weeks. And within that, we have done branding. We're doing budgeting next week. We've learned about how to make logos or what, you know, is important for logos, the qualities of a leader. Um, So I have, you know, six, seven-year-olds telling their parents they're working on their business plan and, you know, that's adorable. Like, look, I'm all about it. So excited. Nice. And so, and so, so far, this is only in in one school. Uh, do you have plans to branch out into other schools? And and I don't want to assume, but I believe when you and I did talk, you said that that the school was majority black in a black neighborhood as well. Right. So, so um, it's off of. Yeah. So so tell me so tell me I guess a little bit about the importance of that and. And kind of the genesis of of the program. The genesis of the program was just based on, I'm trying to think, I feel like there was a tipping point as far as me being interested in life skills. Well, I have siblings. That was a part of it. I was like, we don't do the same things. We're only two or four <laughs> years apart, but we don't, you know, like. You older or younger? I'm the oldest. Uh-huh. And so growing up, I washed the clothes and the dishes and stuff, you know, and. I think it rubbed off on one of us. Um, And so I just thought it was really interesting how little kids knew about those sorts of things. 
And also, when I would talk to people about this idea I had, they were always like, that's so needed, you know? Um, and so being an artist and knowing the power of art, I just thought that that would be a great way to to sort of do it. That's how I kind of developed it. I developed, like, I started this thing three years ago. and But it's really grown, and the needs of the kids really shape, you know, what the programming looks like. But it's a pretty robust program um, as of now, you know, with PowerPoints and worksheets and lesson plans. So I definitely would like to expand to some degree. I think there would have to be some changes, you know, based on what the kids need, you know, rather than older kids would need different things than younger kids. A hundred percent. But also I teach kids K3 through fifth grade. I get three-year-olds to like, was that 10? Oh my goodness. So I'm, yes. Yeah. All the kids. All the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so how did and so how did this so how did this work? Because I because I know so at the, so at the same time you were doing that you've also had a stint with Columbia sixty three, mm-hmm. which is a project to highlight the civil rights history of Columbia, um, and I and I remember that going very well. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought that went very well, and so now you are working with at least one museum, correct? In Lexington Museum of History? The Lexington Museum of Art and oh. yeah, so um, I think it's technically just art, but it's all <laughs> history because it's Lexington. I'm on the board over there, so it is a very it's been a Where is it where is it located? That's because a good I question, because I right? because I've, I remember cuz I used to live not in Lexington because mm-hmm. just you know, quiet as it's kept. Red Bank is not Lexington, South Carolina. I've been to Red Every, Bank. Everybody needs to be aware of that. Uh-huh. Uh, but the people in Red Bank <laughs> seem to like to say, oh, we live in Lexington. No, you yeah. live in Red Bank. <laughs> I know that. Um, but, but I grew up over in that area, you know, off of Highway 6 and Old Orangeburg Road. And so going into the town of Lexington, I'd never seen or heard of the Lexington Museum of Art until... Literally, I'm an adult now, and I was, you know, driving down Highway 6 in that main stretch, and it was like, oh, it's like there's this building off to the side that I've never heard of. Right. <laughs> so let me rephrase that. So it is the Lexington, so let's, so it's the Lexington County Museum, okay? okay. Right. So uh, there, because art does not explain most of the stuff we have. So let me edit. Can you edit that out? Edit that. I, I, I'll, I'll figure <laughs> out. Be like, she do. don't even know where she. Is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it is on Fox Street, and it, the most visible landmark is actually a cotton gin that you can see from the street. Otherwise, you and you see a sign, but there's no entrance by that sign or anything like that. You have to go down Fox Street. There's a uh, mattress like warehouse. They do interpretive right history out at Lexington County Museum, I think, right? Most, yes. That's mostly it. Interpretive history. And then there's some seasonal programs, you know, like a Halloween and a mm-hmm. Christmas. Um, they do that Murders and Mysteries tour that's pretty popular. And then speaking engagements to private groups as well. So what kind of art is in the Lexington County Museum? None. That's why I know that's not correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think unless you think of quilts, you know, we have quilts. Oh, quilts are beautiful. Yes, we, yes, definitely. So we get a lot of the uh, textile related, I guess, crafts and things like that. Um, I want to be, we have, oh, we do have those, uh, the the jugs, the face jugs. We have a few. Oh, so from like Edgefield. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have some, and some of them are nondescript in like a way that there's no, you know, sign. Yeah, I I once tried to acquire some of those face jugs at auction, but they, alas, went up way above what I could afford. Right. This, that's, like, a really huge... Mm-hmm. I, I think they're awesome, personally. I think they're beautiful. I was just doing some research on them for uh, for Kwanzaa. I did... I posted art on my social media, and then from African Americans, and the face jug was one of them, and I had no idea that they were used to hold like a whiskey and things like that. They were supposed to scare the kids away from drinking whatever was inside of them. And they were pretty hidden. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I hadn't heard it. And so I'd done a few, you know, looked at a few different sources. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, uh, so we have those sorts of things. Um, we have some, you know, like postcards, letters. Mm-hmm. And then the houses really are the main thing. Yeah. So what are you doing there? 
tell us tell us about your project. I almost slipped up and told you. Uh, <laughs> my my project there. So I don't have any pro. I don't have a project there. I just am in. My dad's from Lexington County. I grew up in Lexington County, and when I moved back, I was living in Lexington County um, for a while. Uh, and so I'm just on the board serving. It's, I've been in there about two years, and that's pretty much. I just go to the meetings and go to the events and the yeah. What would you like to do there? What would, would be one thing you would want to see the Lexington County Museum do? I would like to see us have more visibility, you know, outside of the people who do know about the Lexington County Museum. I think it is very much supported by people who have a familial connection to the museum, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. Uh, but at the same time, they have some real gems there, one being um, a slave quarantine that I was telling Wayne about a couple weeks ago that came from Gaston, South Carolina. Um, What's a slave quarantine? Tell us about it. Oh, so a slave quarantine is a, um, facility is not the right word. It is a quarantine. It is a structure. Structure. It's, it's sort of so, like, constricting. I wouldn't even call it a structure necessarily because the pitch of the roof it's so, so that so it's basically like a doghouse. It has a door that is smaller than a human can get into, and it has like ventilation windows, sort of. But the roof comes down so low that you would have to basically bend over to to be inside of it. You couldn't yeah, stand. It would be a sitting room. It would be a sitting or crouching a torture. Yeah, that's chamber. what I was trying to right get to. So. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was taken, um, it was found near uh, where I grew up, and it was transported to the museum, and I've never seen anything like that outside of Django. I think there was something similar on that movie, and I never really, like, you know, knew what that was, but that just completely made sense to me when I first saw it. But I don't know that anyone's ever seen one or ever known, you know, that this was a thing. And, of course, it was used to quarantine people, so if slaves were thought to have um, maybe a disease or something like that to separate them from the population but also as um, I, I can imagine it was a, like a torture a and like if right. a fugitive slave was returned that would certainly it'd be a great place to put someone though yeah 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 and right. so and so I and so I kind of want to make note and I'm, and I'm pretty sure you probably think about it often the thread of the, just the different generational pieces in the African-American community that your work has taken you, um, you know, clearly being a young woman, you know, making jewelry to now in, instituting and bringing up a, a new generation, teaching them life skills, and then still connecting very much to the past generation with your work with SC63 and now the museum mm. like how how does how do you, do you how do you think about that do you view that like reflect on it very often I think you should be my PR person if you you know have some time uh, <laughs> that sounded really awesome actually I never put all of those things together I sort of don't think about myself very much in that way and I kind of just have this innate understanding that I need to be doing something and then I just make strides towards that thing. And I haven't quite gotten there, you know, to the thing that'll make me stop. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say that I'm always pleasantly surprised, I think, by the responses that I get. It's either two things. Uh, I'm either thought to be a child, like young, you know, much younger. I'm quite right. So I'm (laughs) petite and I look very young. Actually, my neighbor, seriously, this man has known me since before I was born, thought that I was the youngest child of my three siblings. And we just we just straightened that out yesterday. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I'm four years older than my younger sibling. You know, like this is not. I, I don't know where where this is coming from. Um, but I tell people all the time, I have aunts that have had six kids and they look just like me, like a size three. You know, and petite. It's just it's it's our family. Um, so I get I'm really young. Um, and so there's either like a shock and awe, like oh, you know, this is so 
uh, I don't know, refreshing that you are interested in these sorts of things Mm -hmm. and that you, you know, all of those, 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 those things that black people, people say about young people. And then the kids are like, how old are you? And do you have a boyfriend? And are <laughs> yeah. you married? You get hit on by uh-huh. a 12-year-old. Right, and do you have kids? Uh-huh. And I'm just like, my business. And then we came back from break, Christmas break, and I saw one of the older kids, and the look in his eye was not, I'm happy to see you after a break. The look in his eye was like, we had some unfinished business, and I said, you know what? I'm not, even, <laughs> I'm not participating. I just diverted my eyes. Uh, so I think it's it's like a it's a weird I never know what to expect you know so I just try to show up as myself all the time because I don't know what people see you know when they see me it it really varies. So so clearly you're leaving a mark in in the Columbia community and and so two questions then one what has what is probably the one of the things that surprised you most in all the work that you've done and then what do you think at least like right now and then you know your future self can look back on this what so far has been probably like the proudest work that you've done i would say the thing that surprised me the most has been the um, reception that i've gotten as a artist as a african-american woman you know being in the south as a person who is not (laughs) by any means like Southern in many ways, like I love the South and all of that, but I'm very outspoken and sort of like blunt, which is more of the thing that kind of catches people off guard, you know? And so I don't know how to mince words. Uh, and so I think, but the, the thing that is really surprised me is how much people are willing to share their stories with me in their lives. Like I've called it a perpetual internship since I've graduated college mm-hmm. because I've met so many people who spend... Um, who have spent time just telling me all of the things that they have done and would have avoided, you know, mm-hmm. no matter when we were talking about art, when that was a thing, or, you know, I'm interested in going back to school to study political science and just people just are willing to share. And I, it's so valuable to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's, that's been really, really helpful to me um, establishing like my self-worth, you know, like my uh, self-esteem and just understanding like what I'm supposed to do for people when they ask me like I said you know like I somebody says they have an idea or something and they want to bounce off idea you know ideas with me or something I'm like all about it you know mm-hmm. it's tired or whatever as I am I just feel like that's what people are supposed to do and I don't understand why I would be here trying to you know acquire so much knowledge and all if it wasn't supposed to be shared um, I agree with that yeah mm-hmm. so that's something that I've been really surprised by, happily surprised by. I think something that I would look back on and say I was the most proud of, that's really hard because I am like constantly in awe of the life that I have. And I just don't, I don't know, know why I feel so good about the things. I feel like I get to do the things that I really want to do, you know? And mm-hmm. I think probably, okay, so I would say if there was one thing that really shifted Probably two. One involves a boy, though, so I'm just gonna stick with the one that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of the so I would say choosing to study art. I was a biology major up until my junior year at the College of Charleston, and I always thought I would be a doctor, a maxillofacial surgeon, and fix cleft palates in third world countries through the Peace Corps. And my dad was like, you know, they don't make any money, right? And so. <laughs> Um, I was still like, well, that's what I want to do. But actually, those like science courses really was the reason why I, st- <laughs> you know, I was not so so good at it. Um, as good as I needed to be, or as good as I was told I needed to be. Yeah. Um, and so I decided that I was gonna make art my main thing because it was something Which I was really so, good at. Which is so so much more of a thing that makes money than you like. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was, so repeat that for yeah, the people listening at home. You, it's so crazy how like. When you seriously just, I just read the, Al- I've been reading all kinds of stuff. Um, I was reading The Alchemist not too long ago, which an artist, suge- a boy, suggested that I read. And it it was just saying that. Like, when you want something and the universe, and like, the universe will make sure that you have it. You know what? And, and so, like, I think choosing to be what I knew that I needed to be, despite my parents, like, you sure you don't want to get a job? Or, you know, like, yeah. why don't you just go and apply for that, you know, job? And every time I have applied for a job, 
like a like except for scad i guess mm-hmm. which that was because i'm favored and that's and that's the savannah college of art and design savannah college of art and design um but everything that I've tried to do, you know, when it was for me, it has succeeded. And I have, and it's been in the arts. And I've literally worked in arts since I graduated eight years That's ago. That's amazing. You are, are blessed. I completely agree. Yeah. Because that's not a thing. That's not a No, nobody. that is not a thing. I write for fun because I can't make money at it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's crazy to me. So I can't think of one thing, you know, but like that choice to be, like I'm going to live the life that I feel like. I'm supposed to be living and then fighting everyone that I know. <laughs> everyone that I know every year after that to be like, nope, still going to, you know. Still going to pursue still this. Still going to do it. Still going to. And then, you know, paying off my student loans and not having any debt, you know, from that and never having a car payment and having, you know, living by my, you know, my own and all that other stuff. I can't even complain. I'm really glad I chose to be an artist. Yeah, that's wonderful. Where do you see, ha, has your art changed because of your work with like Columbia 63 or your his work with the Lexington County Museum? I think my personal practice has definitely, so I don't consider the um, business, you know, Royal African Company work, uh, the, the retail stuff. I don't consider that so much my art. Um, it's sort of like that scad deal where I'm making things for other people and I get it out, but I don't really feel it as much. And I can't get attached to it because I sell it, you know? So yeah, I can't cry over every pair of earrings. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, I think the installation work that I've done or more so now the programming and things like that are really, really close to me um, because they are something I care about. Like, I care about black kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And I want them to be able to know how to live you you know and be successful human beings right mm-hmm. yeah right and uh so i would say it definitely changed columbia sc63 changed the way that i saw myself my you know family my it brought up things talking to my grandfather about things i've learned about at work and he's like oh i knew majeska and you and i'm like you know just like blown away by all this stuff that i had never heard of i was wearing a shirley chisholm pin <laughs> at Golden Corral a couple weeks ago and he was looking at um and I had like a Majesca pin on and a Rosa Parks pin and a um it was great and he was like talk tell me all these stories you know about you know the women mm-hmm. and the pins and things like that and how mm-hmm. my father my father's middle name is Monteith actually um oh, really yeah it's weird right Cause, yeah and so I was asking about that and he told me about how you know that happened and my actual aunts and uncles were like, I didn't know that, you know, so we don't really talk about these sorts of things. Well, nobody, nobody want, nobody revisits them. I think that you should interview them for the podcast and send me interviews. Send you that. <laughs> I would love to. I've, so uh-huh. my love of oral histories really started. Yeah. Um, I was just listening uh-huh. to Booker T. Washington, Up From Slavery. Um, and I was just like, this is good stuff. Like, you can't beat it. Yeah. Like, one of my favorite things that came out of the New Deal and the WPA were the slave narratives um, because we can't, you couldn't have gotten those if you'd waited 10 more years. And telling the story of people who were enslaved is something that we now have forever because somebody thought to write it down. I'd like to hear the same stories from the civil rights era because that is just super important for people to know. You know, mm-hmm. I had to, yes, I agree a hundred percent. It's it's important for people to know, and then like it's just I, I feel like now it's it's sort of like a what was um it's, it's sort of like my job to document things. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't get very fi- like I get angry. You know, I've controlled it a lot more over the years, but uh, um. I don't get like fired up. You know, like like that about a lot of things. I feel like I'm supposed to document. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. what an artist does. Yes. Yeah, and I and I and I will certainly say, especially the oral history piece, that it's very it's very important for Black people to try to understand at least as far back as they can some of that familial history because often we aren't able to do that work because slavery eviscerated Absolutely. so much history and so many family connections. Um, you know, and interest, and interestingly, 
enough as well. That's also why uh, black Americans and even white Americans, uh, especially in the South, have you know some amount of either African or European yeah. DNA like split between them, and it's just like. Um, yeah, not all of that was consensual or good. Oh, well. oh, of course not. But that's another podcast. Yeah, that is another podcast. <laughs> but you know, the reality of the fact is that the South is very, for lack of a better word, incestuous. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, uh, I don't <laughs> know how else to the, say it. Like my know? theater teacher used to say, mixing and messing. Uh, uh-huh. But um, yeah. No, that is the truth. Like even in the you know financial you know financial realm and just like, uh-huh. trying to find a job and stuff like that. And yeah, your aunt isn't the director, whatever. Uh, I admit I've gotten jobs through networking. Yes, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh huh. Yeah. So uh, let's let's tie it up now. Do you have any last questions for Sabrina Wayne? Uh, just so so what is if you if you want to talk about anything that is on the horizon or or what advice would you have for any of our listeners who are considering pursuing art and and want to make that a full-time job Uh, that is a good question uh i think a lot of what i try to do for people who are you know creatives is just to be like a sounding board you know and say like Okay, so so I'll just put this out. Like, it's probably one of the scariest things I've ever done, too, being an artist, mm-hmm. because getting a check every month or every two weeks, <laughs> or every week even better, is super comforting. Oh, 100%. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I work for a reason. Right, you know? So I feel like, I won't say it's a drug, like, you know, just try it. But I think, like, you know, you really got to be in a certain place to say, this is what I'm going to do professionally as my way to eat, especially you talking about having kids and all of those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. I would say if this is if that is something that you feel like you really want to pursue, the way that I've done it is not to have a safety net, net but to be um, very thoughtful about the way that I plan it out so mm-hmm. that I save really well, you know. And mm-hmm. so I don't have like like I just applied to grad school and I just applied to one school and everybody's like I haven't heard that in years. Nobody just applies to, to one school. <laughs> and I was just like, this is where I need to go and this is where I need to be. And is it for political science or is it for art? It's for political science. Uh-huh. Um, it's Brown at Brown University, but you know, ooh, that's right, a good school. Yeah, it's and it's right near near Riz, RISD, RISD, RISD. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rhode, Rhode Island, Island School, school of, of Design. Design. Yeah, see, I know. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so I'm just like, I've artist friends. <laughs> well, it's a really, it's a really good institution too. Uh-huh. Um, but I feel like you have to take a leap of faith and really be ready to take whatever comes afterwards. But also being able to understand that you still have bills, you know. And so I do. I, you know, I mean, just to keep it 100%, I, I do, you know, I got a six-month lease right now because I'm trying to go to school, you know? Yeah. So I'm not going to, you know, so I found a person that would, and I'm, you know, completely blessed. I don't take that for granted. But I've never had a car payment because I don't buy new cars, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, salvage title cars work just as good. And keep point moving. A, and, point A to point B. Yeah, That's look, exactly. And they're exactly. not bad cars, you no. know? So it's just about... Yeah. Being very resourceful and think when I paid off my student loans, like... Oh, I, you were free. Look, yeah. <laughs> I, you don't know how much research I did. People, my cousin asked me, she was like, how did you do it? So I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you. Like, her face just went blank after, like, three seconds of me trying to explain how to pay off your student loans. It's just not mm-hmm. something that people can really, like, seriously get their mind around because of the compound interest and all this other stuff. But yeah. I was like, I don't want to owe anybody. Yeah. And I think that's probably you know, changed a lot of my ability to make decisions about careers and, and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I think we wrap it up now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell y'all about our, our Twitter and our Facebook and stuff. And what I want you to do this week, if you can share uh, some of your own art on on our our Twitter, which is SC underscore New Legacy. Or our and Facebook our, page. Or our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash SCNLP. And our Instagram, which is SC underscore New Legacy. So um, I would I hope you, you share, and we, we'd love to see it. 
And thank you so much, Sabrina, for 100%. being here. Yeah, I will say, okay, so I do have one plug. Okay. Uh, plug. Uh, plug. We love shameless plugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like I said, I am doing a, it's called Artwork Wednesdays this month of February. I'm actually writing a grant to maybe redo it. But um, as of now, it's just going to be February from uh, 5.30 till 7 at 1426 Hampton Street. It's a creepy white house. If you think you like want to turn around, you're at the right place. It's right across the street from the YMCA. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so you can come and get um, advice or we could just talk about art, you know, art bios, labels, art statements, any projects you have coming up. I want to, you know, help you leave with some action steps and an accountability buddy and um, really get like goals, you know, mastered. So that sounds amazing. Yeah, come so tell, plug your, your store one more time too. So the, yeah, the company is Royal African company. We're in five, uh, facility stores, museums and retail shops in Columbia. The closest here being the Columbia Museum of Art, um, good for the soul shoes on, uh, Santee Avenue. And then, uh, Pelliclot in the arcade building on main street. Um, and then there's one boutique in Charleston called Utopia Boutique, and then there is a uh, museum in Ridge in Ridgeville. Um, mm. So is it Ridgeville? I think Ridgeway. It's Ridgeway. Ridgeway. Yeah. Right. Um, yes, outside of Savannah. Oh well, then that might be Ridgeville. I think it's Ridgeville. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So yeah, check them out. Um, I got some really cool stuff. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Royal African at Royal African Co. Um, you can call me. You can check out the website, royalafricanco.com. Um, I got some art at Taps right now. You want to check that out? So I'm kind of everywhere. Spread. Yeah. So Sabrina's famous in the local area. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, thank I'm... you so much for coming. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah. Yay. Thank you.